Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Supporting autistic and neurodiverse people on a daily basis, I see firsthand the many challenges to inclusion in all aspects of community. The Americans with Disabilities Act was created as a piece of civil rights legislation that makes it illegal to discriminate against anyone with a disability in all aspects of community. On this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with Haley Moss and Amy Guetta about the importance of the ADA 29 years later and what changes could be made in the future to improve the law. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Haley and Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. Thank you. Now, Haley, it's been uh, about a year since the uh, first time we talked on Autism Stories, and it seems from a distance that you've had uh, quite an exciting year. Um, what's been uh, happening with you uh, in the last year or so? Where to start? First off, it was awesome getting to meet you back in June at the Milestones Conference. I'm still not sure if I get to go again this year. I hope I will. I really want to see everyone back in Cleveland. Soon enough, since we last spoke, I became an attorney. I am blessed that I got part of our, I enjoyed some time in practice. I got to travel around a lot. I got to write a lot of articles and do a lot of work that I'm really proud of. Recently, I left my law firm attorney job and began my own business. So now I am transitioning full-time into more education-based advocacy as opposed to litigation. And so what that means is I do a lot more public speaking, conferences, and also consulting on university in the workplace and policy. So I get to have a lot of fun, put my law degree to work to actually benefit people. Recently, the two of you collaborated on a wonderful article discussing how the Americans with Disabilities Act remains crucial in the fight against ableism 29 years later. This act has prohibited disability discrimination and provided accommodations in most public and private places. How did the two of you connect and this article come about? I think the story about this is actually pretty funny. I think it was a few months back that I had read one of Haley's articles in Teen Vogue, and then I followed her on Twitter. Um, and then months later, what was it? Must have been December, right, Haley? Something like that. There was, yeah, I think it was early, it was um, November, it was right near Thanksgiving. There was this op-ed that came out of a Colorado newspaper, and it was just a very, um, a very weak argument against the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it frustrated a lot of people in the, um, the disability community, as well as the deaf community, um, neurodivergent, autistic, anyone who's protected under that act. And I just went on, like, a Twitter rage about it, basically. <laughs> and Haley, who I had never talked to before, just said, I want to use my law degree to write a really good op-ed about this. And I said, let's do it. And then it was kind of amazing. Within, like, five hours, we had, like, a publisher. We had, like, a whole, like, mental draft of how we were going to do it. We texted nonstop and realized we're, like, also just very compatible as friends. And it was just an amazing collaboration. If you've ever worked with someone on writing, it's very hard to do, um, and I'm very grateful that we were able to come together over something we're so passionate about and use both of our skills 
her law skills and my um, background in humanities and disability studies. And what also made this feel important in response to the op-ed that we were addressing at first is it was written, I believe, by someone who had a PhD in some scientific field. And computer science. Computer science. <laughs> and I remember when I, when you were speaking about it, and I responded to you, I'm like, I would really like to see a disabled lawyer say something to this guy who has a disability, has a computer mm-hmm. science PhD, and then you were like, yeah, I also have a humanities degree in disability studies. Like, yeah, you and I can take it on the world. Let's take this guy, let's take this <laughs> <laughs> argument we can that act is important. Sign is a disabled scholar and a lawyer. Goodbye. <laughs> I think that was awesome, and we had so much fun writing it, and seriously, the best part is that we're really good friends because of it, and we still continue to talk all the time, and it's really awesome. Such a great experience. It's just really what she did want for a collaboration, and it was so well received from everyone in the disability community, too, which was really exciting. Now, for those that may not be familiar with the original Americans with Disabilities Act, what is the historical background of this act? The Americans with Disabilities Act, as we know it, has been, it was signed in 1990 by President H. George H.W. Bush. It was a bipartisan effort, so both parties worked on it. Some of the big authors and sponsors are people like former Congressman Coelho. There's so, so many people who were involved in making the ADA happen. And pretty much what happened with the ADA historically as well is it adapted a lot from Civil Rights Act in the 60s to give those discrimination protections to people with disabilities who might not have had it the way that people of different genders, races, sexual Mm -hmm. orientations, and religions have those safeguards. So the ADA was such a crucial piece of civil rights legislation that affects both public and private accommodation and things like that. Before the ADA, the big legislation in disability world was the Rehabilitation, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 that only affected mm-hmm. programs and activities that got federal financial assistance or federal agencies. And then there was also the first form of the Individuals, Educate, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that came in the 70s as well. So the ADA was the last crucial piece. The last set of amendments to it to strengthen it came during the Obama administration and 29th, that we're coming up to the 30th anniversary of the ADA. It's still a crucial time. There's so much work left to be done. And the one thing I'd add to that, too, is that when it came about um, under the Bush administration, even, you know, it really doesn't seem like that long ago, 30 years, but at the time, there was still such a limited understanding of what disability was within the American imagination, which primarily, like, I study kind of American studies and warfare, and the dominant image was really like the disabled veteran coming home to America or like a wheelchair user, which are such, you know, powerful images of what disability looks like and how it um, operates in the world, how it's experienced. And then, you know, a lot of my work is around invisible disabilities um, and thinking about chronic illnesses or neurodivergent conditions. And as the ADA has kind of expanded and, you know, um, got more complex to accommodate different disabilities, it's also allowed for greater representation, I think. Um, and an expanded understanding of like what a disabled life could be, basically, in America. Now, the ADA covers many areas of our lives. What are the main areas that it encapsulates? So the ADA is divided pretty much into five different titles. 
address all the different non-discrimination and accessibility issues that arise for disabled folks. So it's the first title still employment. The second is non-discrimination in state and local government services and places. So sometimes things like like certain like hospitals that might be county or state run things mm-hmm. like that. I actually have to dive in a little bit into it in terms of some of the presidential disability policies. Um, Title three is public accommodations and accessibility. There's all the fourth the telecommunications and the fifth title pretty much is anything that doesn't fit into the other fours and mm-hmm. clarifies kind of the definitions of disability. So it is pretty comprehensive, but there are always exceptions to who is and isn't required to comply within the ADA. Much like any law, like most laws, there seems to be some ambiguity within the ADA. What's the process for the interpretation of the law? Interpretations and ambiguities are cleared up in state and federal courts. So based on lawsuits and questions that arise from lawsuits, they usually, depending on what the lawsuit is, it can end up in either state or federal court. Most ADA issues, at least that I've seen, usually are in federal court because it is a federal statute, so it's like federal question jurisdiction, but that's all like the law school version of it, so mm-hmm. we're going to have to analyze existing case law and also public policy considerations to decide whether or not something that's reasonable fits in the definitions and confines of the ADA case by case, and that whole line of precedent can apply to any area, whether it's accommodations on a test, most of my ADA research that I did when I was in law school was on testing accommodations, so I can tell you all about how the ADA applies to that, and or even just things like parking spaces, because that's what a lot of people think of with ADA lawsuits and compliance, so it really does go case by case, and ultimately comes from the court system, unless there is additional legislation or amendments to the act itself. So one thing I would also just add to that, too, when it comes to the question of interpretation, is I think this is when a lot of misconceptions about the ADA actually arise. Questioning things like, what is a reasonable accommodation? And like Haley said, looking at one case as an example, rather than looking at it as a case-by-case, um, case-by-case basis. Because one of, the, um, one of the issues with the op-ed article that Haley and I replied to was the author had kind of cherry-picked these very decontextualized cases of, um, you know, ADA lawsuits um, and looking at them in a way to kind of villainize the law. And that seems to be one really strong point of attack of looking at, like, what is and what counts as a disability, what counts as a reasonable accommodation, and trying to have a firm definition of that rather than a more fluid one. Thinking about the public or private institutions that accommodations can be made with ADA law, what are some public and private institutions that the accommodations are not able to be provided? It's not that necessarily they're not able to be provided is what I've noticed as much as it's not mandatory or required to know. Some of the big exceptions are religious institutions and also private employers and businesses that have less than 15 employees. So right now, hypothetically, as a small business owner, I don't hire anyone currently, but if I am going to have a team, I am not required by law to comply with the ADA and make sure that my apartment is accessible and all sorts of Mm -hmm. other things like that. I don't have to hit the same benchmarks and mandatory requirements that a big corporation or someone hiring more than 15 people might. 
the religious exemptions, I think, are something that needs to be addressed going forward because I think all places, public or private, should be accessible or at least be held to a higher standard, especially because religion for so many people is such an important cultural aspect of their lives and surprise that a lot of religious institutions are excused from public accommodations. I will say that many religious spaces I go into do have some type of accommodation, but it's usually kind of limited, such as, like, I could go into a church and, yes, they'll have, like, a wheelchair ramp or something like that, but they might not take me seriously if I say, don't use fragrances in the church because it, you know, I have sensory processing issues or something. So I have noticed it, but it just seems to be, um, as Haley said, something needs to be reinforced more institutions. I think it's that they're not held to the same standard as most yeah. or other public accommodations. Is that mm-hmm. they won't they're not as likely to get slapped with a lawsuit or it won't hold water the same way because they are yeah. considered an exception. I do. I have a, a friend he's a pastor and he's also a wheelchair user and he actually brings his own ramp around with him. He keeps it in the back of his van specifically to like access you know, just general spaces, but also religious spaces that don't have those kind of accommodations for him. Yeah, <laughs> just carrying your own ramp is, up the top of the wheelchair. It's pretty wild. I mean, I'm not surprised that, like, they won't provide noise-canceling headphones or something, but I think having to bring your yeah. own ramp I feel like bring your own ramp is, like, or B-Y-O-R seems a little egregious. It, yes, it, it'd be surprised how many wheelchair users I know bring their own ramp, which is... It, for me, that's kind of like the baseline accommodation, like, you know, something other than stairs and escalators, like, do you have a lift? Do you have a ramp? The brand new engineering building built on a university in California campus that did not have a wheelchair ramp, and the building was built in, I think, what, like, it was built in, like, 2012 or something, mm-hmm. which I don't even know how those building plans passed, right? It might be even, I think the only way something like that might have been able to pass is there might not have been a specific, like a specification in the ADA about or compliance about doors. Like I know that there's certain things like a sink has to be this high or there needs to be this much room in the bathroom yeah. or whatever. Mm. Like, like if you look at some of the ADA compliance docs from ADA.gov, they do show like how a bathroom should be laid out for instance, but I don't know what exactly they do about doors. I try to see both sides even though I really just don't get how you can have a building plan in 2013, inaccessible yeah. attack. Especially universities that have to comply with the ADA, and they usually do receive federal funding or state funding of some kind as well. So I'm, I'm not sure if they get federal dollars as well, but if they do, then they're, mm. again, because a lot of the fact they get federal dollars makes them immediately be held to the Rehab Act, especially in terms of providing like accommodations for students, which is a whole mm. other topic because. As we know, IDEA doesn't cover university students because they're not right. in secondary school or, or they're not 22 or whatever. It's usually that they're out of secondary school because IDEA is up to 22 in secondary school or when you graduate secondary mm-hmm. school or high school. So they so universities have to comply with the Rehab Act anyway, so they are getting federal money. So they kind of do get that line of public accommodation and also place that gets federal money. Right. From a legal perspective, I mean, I think it's really important that you, you you know, a legal and also advocate perspective, as you said, like, you have to put on that lawyer hat to understand the logic and the policies that even allowed that to happen, so mm-hmm. then we can, you know, fight against them. 
all of this is making me think about how we've come a long way in the last 29 years, but we definitely have a long way still to go. So for the critics of the ADA, what are some reason that it's essential that the ADA is still in existence? I mean, the first thing I'll say, and, and you know, Haley, I had never thought about this and really in depth until you had said it, that the ADA is civil rights law. I think we don't think about it that way. It's usually not named that way, but it is a civil rights law. And usually when you say things in that framework, people start to understand the importance of it. And the other aspect of it is is that, like, discrimination against disabled people is very real, whether or not it's intended or unintended or conscious or unconscious. It is very real. It's every aspect of our lives, and we can't just rely on kindness for people to provide accommodations and access. It, you know, has to be a, a legal right. I think you hit it pretty much on the head, and I think <laughs> looking at it as a civil rights law is definitely what makes the difference, and I think what's important as well is when we look at other civil rights legislation is if we took those same rights away from any other class of people, so we if we made it if we didn't protect racial minorities from discrimination or anything like that, there would be such collective outrage. Why would it? Why yeah. Should, why should it? And why can't it be any different for disabled folks? Right. Just imagine like telling a group of people like you know telling women, yeah, you can't enter this space anymore. It's like we literally don't, you literally can't come into the building. Because that's what it's like for some disabled people. Like, if you've ever felt like trapped or stuck or something. And a really powerful example of this to look at it in a student context is one of, I think, one of the most interesting hashtags on, on Twitter right now, which is just hashtag why disabled people drop out. And it's just looking at students who were failed by the education system because it didn't accommodate them in various ways. And it's also filled with stories of people who had to fight for their right for accommodations in order to stay in school and get their education. And without that legal background, like, you know, so many people wouldn't have been able to get an education. And that's, that's just absolutely, you know, wild to me um, to think about today. Thinking about the future of the ADA and inclusion, what are the improvements that you feel like need to be made? I think in terms of the ADA, I think to keep growing. I think this needs to be something that's continued in education and of course continue to interpret the ADA. Codifying some of the decisions in legislation will keep it safeguarded because as you know, even with precedents in the courts, you can always have someone do something completely different in another circuit or another federal court and then obviously that's how things end up in, in the Supreme Court and whatnot and so on and so forth. So even I feel like this is probably the best way to explain it, so you know how there's all sorts of political fight about overturning Roe v. Wade. If that if that decision was codified, you wouldn't be having that same battle per se. So precedents can always be overturned in courts. And I think that if certain things are written into an amendment to the ADA, as they were during the Obama administration, that can also help continue culture and keep the law relevant as time goes on. So. The courts actually decided about all, a lot of the cases about web accessibility, so whether or not, because as we know in the 1990 when the ADA was first signed, the internet wasn't quite what it is now. It's existent at all. I'm not really sure. I don't know my internet history that well. But courts have decided over and over that web accessibility is covered under the ADA. So that your, mm -hmm. your website should be 
compliant for the street readers or somehow accommodate people with disabilities. So in the amendments the ADA can purposely say also includes online justice. And then that's not something that someone can go litigate one day and say, you know, there, there's no reason my website should provide reasonable accommodation. So I look at it as legislation and bolstering what we already have is a great way to improve in the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful way to put that, Haley. Um, 100% agree with you there. Um, and the other thing I'd add is that, like, you know, just improving the ADA, I'd say, isn't enough. And I'd say the other component of that is also just um, to remove the stigma and um, around people, you know, asking for what they need, asking for accommodations. I know so many people, and I myself have been in situations where I, like, feel bad for asking for an accommodation for, you know, my legal rights, what I need. And I think a lot of that just, once again, comes from the, you know, the stigma around disability, um, the stigma and the stereotype of disabled people as needy or as a burden on society, which is not at all the case. So in order to both strengthen the ADA and the enactment of it, um, I really think we need to do, like, what Haley and I are also trying to do are kind of advocacy work um, for acceptance and um, removing stigmas. So many neurodiverse people, they have an invisible disability. How do you think the ADA helps to support them? I think with invisible disabilities, it also just allows you to get accommodations that you might not have thought of and also to, mm-hmm. I think it helps foster inclusion, but you have to understand that the definition of disability is really broad under the ADA. It literally is yeah. something that impacts a major life activity. So, and, it, and then there, it will delineate flat out that certain things aren't. So, for instance, unless obesity or something is related to a medical condition, you can't just say, I have disability because this is whatever. So, I think, yeah. it's really, and even like things like substance abuse, things like that can be covered. Like pregnancy is not covered. So, even just the definition mm-hmm. is so broad that it definitely applies to people who are neurodivergent or also do have invisible or chronic disabilities as well. So, I think that's kind of something worth mentioning in terms of how it can be applied. Um, And one positive thing um, on this note about neurodivergency is that I'm an instructor at um, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm always in meetings with the disability offices, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to best support students. And one thing that I learned recently, which made me very happy, is that more than ever, students are becoming documented with the Disability Resource Center, and they're asking for the accommodations they need, and it's, you know, primarily students who identify as neurodiverse, um, neurodiverse, and they're like, they've been documented for a while, but they've never used their accommodations, and they're finally starting to use their accommodations in larger numbers. So that just made me really excited to see neurodivergent people taking advantage um, of, you know, the resources they deserve. This article, I think, was a, a great collaboration. I, I, I loved reading it. And it makes me think about, will we see future collaborations with the two of you ladies? I hope we I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think, we're on the same way, but like, we both hope so. And I know we both talked about writing something else or even getting to present on this somewhere as well because there's yeah. so much to cover. And especially now that yeah. we're at 8830 and we were talking I think about we, we were writing 
And when we were writing as well, we were both talking about being born after the ADA was passed. So there's just so much left to unpack and so much that aligns in terms of our research interests and our friendship that it's like, what can we do together? Because there's so much out there. You know, that might actually be a really great topic for us to think about, um, how the ADA can be improved and strengthened to accommodate neurodivergent people. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, okay, I think you inspired us. Yeah, I'm 100% in. Um, I love how you're, you sound a lot like me, like you're thinking out loud, like I can tell you're thinking about this as you're talking, yep. and I'm like, you know, I might forget about yep. it in five minutes, but I already know from it. It's fine. I'll tweet about it so you'll remember. <laughs> well, but that could be our that could be our ADA thirty project. Sounds like we have yeah, our next yeah. collaboration then, uh, and I'll I'll look yeah, for thank you. And I'll look forward to bugging you two ladies to come back and uh, talk about that as well. I would love that. I can't wait. Well, I really appreciated the conversation. Thank you, uh, Haley and Amy, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing this go live um, online. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks so much to Haley and Amy for this important conversation about the ADA and how it has and will continue to provide a legal platform to disabled people for fair treatment in any part of community life that they so desire. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind, and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, all you have to do is email doug.bletcher at autismpersonalcoach.com or call or text 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Tacey Taverso about the Our Golden Moment movement. Talk to you then. Comprehend